Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's a joy and privilege to worship with you today. I have never been to Scotland before, although on my grandmother's side, uh, we were from the Mackenzie clan. Is anybody a Mackenzie in the room? Oh, at least one. Okay. We're probably related in, in some way. Uh, but my husband and I have never been uh, to this beautiful country before, and he came with me because it's our 35th wedding anniversary. And so we came on Monday. Thank you. We decided to sign up for at least one more year and try to stay together. And uh, we have been walking all over your gorgeous city. It is truly one of the most beautiful places we have ever been. And I just can't imagine living here. It's just delightful. Yesterday I spent the day with some women leaders, uh, some from your church and from some other churches, and my husband was by himself. And I was quite worried that when I returned he would have purchased some real estate already. Um, he would love to live here. So thank you very much for warmly welcoming us. Um, we have a picture, I don't know if it's been up yet, of Warren and myself, um, just in case you didn't see his handsome face down here. And uh, we have been blessed with two daughters, uh, Samantha and Johanna. Uh, they are 25 and 22. And they have both been studying theater. They are done with school now. And they are pursuing a life in theater and acting, which basically means they're poor. And um, they are living together in an apartment uh, in Chicago. I know that you think that I have a Chicago accent. And I think that you have an accent. And I love your accent, actually. Um, and I'm hoping you'll understand me, uh, because I think we're supposed to speak the same language. But sometimes, uh, sometimes it might get a little bit confusing. Now, I know you've been studying parables. And today, we're going to explore the parable that was just read uh, so beautifully for us. And we're going to explore a character trait that God cares deeply about. It is one of the greatest uh, pieces of evidence of a person who is a follower of Jesus. This virtue is addressed all over the Bible, but it's hugely misunderstood. We're going to talk about humility. Now, in an age of selfies and Instagram and personal websites and creating a, a person's brand image, the trait of humility is remarkable and rare. We're urged in our culture to promote ourselves, to make sure that we receive the recognition or the salary or the position or title or the office location or the honor and prestige that we think we deserve. After all, if we don't promote ourselves, maybe no one else will. Recently, in a university graduation message, entertainer Sean Diddy Combs had this to say. He said, Nobody is going to take you to the front of the line unless you push your way to the front of the line. Is that true? Is the only way to get honor and recognition to push for it ourselves? I don't know about you, but I'm going to admit that I struggle with humility on a daily basis. I'm learning that I have an addiction to approval and affirmation. I care way too much what other people think about me. And God is teaching me about this grace of humility and what it truly means to be humble. My brother's daughter, my niece, whose name is Taryn, uh, got married on a summer day in Kansas City. Most of our extended family could not attend, but my younger sister and I decided to fly there together and to represent uh, everyone in the family who could not come. 
So we were the ants who flew in from Chicago. This wedding was in a gorgeous outdoor location, and then the reception was held in a really beautiful, cool, uh, old building that they had rented with lots of windows and wooden floors, much like this beautiful space. It was decorated with flowers in vintage vases and gorgeous table settings. My sister and I were two of the first to arrive at the reception, and unlike most weddings, there were no tables with names on them for where you were supposed to sit. So we weren't, there were tables, but there were no name cards, and we weren't sure where we were supposed to go. So we took a glass of punch, and we decided, well, let's just find a place to sit down. It was a little bit awkward. Uh, we didn't know if any table was reserved for close relatives. So we decided to sit, at my sister's suggestion, in the very back of the room. A little bit later, a hostess came up to us, and she said, are you the ants from Chicago? And we said, yes. And she said immediately, you cannot sit at this back table. And she ushered us up toward the front. And we ended up at a table right next to the wedding party and the bride's family. Well, that experience reminded me very much of the parable found in Luke 14. Because in this situation, Jesus is observing the seating arrangements at a wedding feast of a prominent Pharisee. I'd like to read the passage one more time, this time from the message version of the Bible. Take a look at this. He says, he went on to tell a story to the guests around the table. Noticing how each had tried to elbow into places of honor, he said, when someone invites you to dinner, don't take the place of honor. Somebody more important than you might have been invited by the host. Then he'll come and call out in front of everybody, you're in the wrong place. This place of honor belongs to this man. And red-faced, you'll have to make your way to the very last table, the only place left. When you're invited to dinner, go and sit at the last place. Then when the host comes, he may very well say, friend, come on up to the front, and that will give the dinner guests something to talk about. What I'm saying is, if you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to simply be yourself, you will become more than yourself. How embarrassing would it have been for my sister and me to go up to one of the front tables and then be asked to move. I'm so glad that my humble sister guided us uh, to the back of the room. I want to tell you a little bit about first century banquets because the way they would sit at these banquets is quite different from the way you and I uh, sit today. The basic item of furniture was a small couch uh, called a triclinium. It would seat three people, so it was kind of in a, a rectangle, and the prominent seat, all of these couches were arranged in a semicircle, the prominent seat was the middle seat in the back couch. And then the next two seats were right adjacent to that middle seat, and then you would go to the couch to the left, and the middle seat would be important seat number four, and five and six would be there, and then you'd go to the center seat in the next couch, and so on. So the least important seats were at the very end uh, of the circle. That's where the losers, you know, would have to sit. So let's imagine the scene at this banquet together and observe what Jesus saw. He was standing on the sidelines just watching, watching humanity, watching us be humans, and he saw the people mingling and sort of making small talk, and then they subtly tried to position themselves, you know, for the best seat. And they were having a little drink of wine, but they were moving over, you know, and hoping that they could sit in the very best seat. 
And Jesus pointed to a danger in this scramble for good seats, the humiliating possibility that the host would come to a latecomer with a latecomer who was more prominent VIP. And the host would insist that the guy who had sat in that very special spot vacate it. And then the only seat left might be one towards the end of the U. With shame and loss of face, the prideful guest would have to go where he least wanted to be. Jesus said, it is far better to go to the lowest place first. Then the host might come and invite you to move up. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what is humility? Many of us hold misconceptions about this virtue. We may picture a humble person as someone who is filled with self-contempt, who sees themselves as a worthless worm, who is passive and tentative and completely lacking in any self-confidence, but that is not the biblical picture of humility. We all know people with a habit of sort of putting themselves down and deflecting compliments. That's a false attitude, full of self-pity, and it usually reveals, actually, a prideful preoccupation with place. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of someone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And here's the key sentence. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Jesus turned everything upside down. His teaching was absolutely radical. It reversed the contemporary notion of greatness. We are not unlike the first century culture when it comes to establishing a pecking order for who matters most, who we treat with honor, and how we compete with one another for the top spot. The prideful grasping of position and honor, this happens in our workplaces. It happens even in our neighborhoods. It happens at the schools. Many of us walk into a room and right away, we begin to try to figure out where the most important people are. It's like the school cafeteria with the tables reserved for the really cool kids and then those other tables where no one wants to be. The sad truth is that even in our churches, we treat certain people as more worthy of our attention, holding up a few people like celebrities, like a worship leader or a teaching pastor or the leader of a ministry. And we treat those people in certain positions with almost a blind devotion, which really belongs only to our Heavenly Father. Jesus was relentless in his declarations that his followers must choose a completely different path. Fundamentally, God hates pride. It is at the root of all other sins, and it is alarmingly deceitful. I'm learning that pride is tucked deep within us, and it's masked in a thousand ways. In my own life, I continue to uncover the subtlety of this sin. For example, I can see my pride when I'm in a meeting and I want to take credit for an idea. I want to make sure everybody knows that was my idea. 
or maybe in a disagreement with my husband, which of course is very rare, but when it happens and I can't let go of the need to be right, I want to have that last, you know, statement. Or maybe in a conversation with friends when I feel compelled to mention that I've read a certain book or spoke at a certain place or talked to someone that maybe they would be impressed by. When you and I are prideful, even in small ways, we usurp the glory and honor that rightfully belongs only to God. It is in our most unguarded moments that we really show and see who we are. And one of the evil one's most effective schemes is to cause you and me to be so preoccupied with ourselves that we can't focus on anything else. This is a form of self-absorption or even narcissism. You know, I'm learning that it all comes down to how we see. Humility requires right-sizing. If you and I can get our vision right-sized, we will be on the road to humility. So first we have to adjust our view of God. I have to right-size my view of God. When we ground ourselves in a right view of God, we almost can't help but be humble. We just sang the song, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We created and agreed together on a big picture of God. And if we truly know God and the wonder of his power and his grace, his sovereignty, his purity, his justice, and his boundless love, we're going to see this gargantuan gap between us as human beings and him. This was the posture of John the Baptist, who arguably could have been very prideful about his role in the kingdom, but he was crystal clear about who he was, and he declared, after me, someone will come who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He must become greater. I must become less. Many years ago, uh, there was a book that came out, and the writer titled it, Your God is Too Small. Is the God you know too small? Have you limited him? Have you seen him as too much like us humans, almost like your buddy, more than the almighty, eternally faithful, outrageously grace-giving, magnificent, and absolutely holy God? He is completely other than you and me. And we remind one another of those truths when we gather and we sing songs like holy, holy, holy. Those worship songs help us right-size our view of God. On a very practical level, another way to right-size your view of God is to get out in creation. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful day. On our first day here, we made a very challenging climb up Arthur's Peak. Wow. It was very steep. By the time I got to the top, I wasn't too sure I was ready to appreciate creation, but when I could breathe again, I looked out at the beauty below us, the water, your city, the trees where the leaves are just beginning to change color. And I thought, wow, wow, look what God has made. We need to have eyes to see, to not take it for granted, to look at a flower and look up close and study its color and the wonder of its creation and design. To feel the sun. Did you see the moon last night? Wow. A full moon, a beautiful sky. We know the God. We know the God who made that, who designed it. And when we know that, it's almost impossible not to be humble 
in the face of such glory. We look to the skies and we say, you are God and I am not. Humble people walk around with an acute awareness of the majesty of God. But then I have to right-size my view of myself as well. When my husband and I became empty nesters just a few years ago, our younger daughter put on a very persuasive campaign saying that we needed an empty nest dog. I didn't know that was a thing, but she said, yes, you need something to nurture, something to cuddle. And so we decided after much uh, argument with her that we would get a dog. She's highly persuasive. And we ended up with this adorable dog. This is Beanie. Now, Beanie is a little bigger than that now. She currently weighs, in our language, about 13 pounds. She's, she's not a very big dog. But apparently, she doesn't see herself as small. She boldly runs up to huge Labradors or German Shepherds, and she smells them, and she tries to play. She seems very shocked if the bigger dog barks at her or nips at her as if to say, get out of my way, you tiny dog. And Beanie looks up at us with sad eyes, wondering what she did wrong. And we leave quickly, and I seriously judge those dog owners in my heart. But the truth is, Beanie needs to right-size her view of herself and see herself accurately. She needs to kind of like look in the mirror. Take a look at these instructions from the Apostle Paul. These were written in his letters to the Romans. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Not higher than you ought, not lower than you ought, by the way, but with sober judgment. I believe this means to face the truth about ourselves, both our strengths and our weaknesses, our gifts, which we all have gifts, uh, and our limits, our best healthy self and our shadow side, our toxic self, our patterns of sin. When it comes to right-sizing our view of ourselves, some of us tip one way, and some the other. So let's start with those of us who may tend to see ourselves as better than we are. Those who subtly or not so subtly push for attention and our rightful place. Our job in right-sizing is to take a closer look at where we are not all that God calls us to be. To regularly examine ourselves, to confess, to bring into the light any thoughts or words or behaviors that do not honor God. We need to let go on a daily basis of our need to be noticed and honored. There's a young man from our church back home who just started a new job. And I've been coaching him a little bit. And uh, he, he said, you know what I have to say to myself on the bus on the way to my work every day is God help me let go of the need to impress these people, to be honored, help me to serve. Tell me to show up at work every day with a spirit of service. And I was so delighted to get an email from him. He's only been on his new job for a couple weeks, and he just sent me an email to report that it's going really well. And he feels like he's collaborating with the people, and he's letting go of this need to impress them. But there are other people who go the opposite direction. Maybe you've been listening so far, and you're half asleep because you're thinking, you know, humility is not an issue for me. I have no problem in this area. You may be more inclined to see yourself of little worth. You don't think you deserve any honor or praise because really when you look at yourself, all you see are your faults and your failures. 
Maybe you tend to put yourself down a lot, and that may look like humility, but in many cases, it is actually a false humility. To get right-sized, you need to see your incredible worth as a son or daughter of God. That is who you are. You are a treasured son or daughter of God. That is your primary identity. And to get right-sized, your job is to rec recognize this treasure that God made when he created you and to not hold back from what you are uniquely created to do and to contribute to others. So a humble person right-sizes their view of God, they right-size their view of themselves, and finally they right-size their view of other people. When writing to the Philippians, Paul gave us these instructions. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others, not being self-absorbed, not walking around thinking only of your own agenda, your own plans, your own hurts, your own thoughts, but instead saying, I wonder how that person is doing. I wonder if I could serve that individual in some way. Humility ignores rank or class. It's not concerned with the level of education or income or degree of popularity of somebody else. When a humble person walks into a room, he or she is immediately focused on other people, especially someone who might be on the fringe, on the outside, who's maybe shy or who feels excluded or doesn't know anybody. And you harness all that energy that you might have used to worry about your own place, and you throw that energy instead toward listening to someone else, toward welcoming someone else to usher in God's love and hope and grace to someone else. A humble person does not give in to feelings of jealousy or envy when someone else receives praise or honor. Rather, you give praise to God for that person and what he or she is contributing. You say, way to go. I'm thrilled for you. I really am. The Bible tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice. C.S. Lewis, remember, said, it is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So, let's get practical. The next time you walk into a wedding or a meeting or to school or to church, focus your energy and thoughts toward other people. Head for the less important seats, the back of the room, the outside circle instead of the inner one. And the grace of humility will sneak up on you and prideful thoughts will begin to fade and slip away. God promises us that if we stop pushing and grasping for our rights, for honor and affirmation, he can actually be trusted to take care of it. He's not against honor. He just wants us to leave that up to him. One of the most humble people I've ever known was my father, Warren Moore. You may remember that my husband's name is Warren. I guess I thought when you were supposed to look for a man like your husband or like your father, you had to find someone with the same name. So they're both named Warren. Uh, my father was a Marine fighter pilot in World War II and the Korean War. He uh, earned the Distinguished Flying Cross. There's a picture of him uh, by his plane. Here's another photo of him in his uniform. Uh, he was a very handsome guy. He did not come to faith in Christ until he was 25 years old. And after that, while he was stationed in Korea, there were young teenage boys, Korean young men, who cleaned up the Marine barracks. 
And there was a 15-year-old young boy in my dad's barrack whose name was Jongmin Lee. My dad was a new believer. Not only that, my dad was a very quiet, kind of shy man. He was not a public speaker. But he took a risk, and he built a friendship with Jongmin, even though they had a language barrier. My dad began to talk to him in very simple ways about spiritual things. Jongmin's family had 11 children. They were all Buddhist. After a period of time, Jongmin made a decision to follow Jesus. My dad returned to his home church in Chicago, and they raised money for Jongmin to come over to Chicago and to study for the ministry at a seminary. He eventually stayed in the States and built a church in Los Angeles for the Korean Americans, a church that continues to be vital and strong. My middle name is Lee. I am Nancy Lee, named after Jungman Lee. Many years after Jungman became a pastor in Los Angeles, his church invited my parents to visit so that they could honor them. So this is a photo from a few decades ago when my parents visited. There's some weird plant framing my mother's face, so <laughs> don't let that distract you. My father passed away a year and a half ago at the age of 92. At his funeral, my brother and I both had the opportunity to share tributes about my father's life, to tell some stories. And I was driving to the funeral, and on my way, I believe God gave me a bold idea. It was something I had not really planned to do. But after I described my father to the people who had braved a huge snowstorm on a January day to come and to honor him, I said words something like this. My father was a very quiet behind-the-scenes kind of man. He served in hidden ways. He helped some boys without fathers learn how to set up a budget, how to apply for college. My dad was always the one who served at the pancake breakfast, who washed our kitchen floors, who was quick to help out a neighbor in need. I remember my dad giving money to a single mom who was trying to raise three daughters profoundly scarred by their alcoholic father. I could go on and on. I said to the people, you've heard about his wonderful life of love, which was only possible because of the transforming work of God in his life. But my dad cooperated with God, and he made righteous choices. Like me, I said, you may feel a need to honor him in some way, just this desire to honor him. I said, my dad's face was never on the cover of a magazine. I don't think he ever received a standing ovation in his life. And it occurs to me, I said, that that might be the most appropriate thing we could do right now. I think maybe he can see us from his heavenly home. So I invite you to stand, I said, and applaud and honor the life of Warren Moore. And in that moment, over 200 people stood to their feet, and they could not stop clapping. They wanted to honor this man, this very simple quiet man. We were compelled to express honor where honor is due. My dad saw God accurately. He worshiped God. He knew God was bigger and stronger than he was. He saw himself accurately. He knew he was a flawed man. He knew he was a sinner. And he saw other people accurately. He definitely saw other people as more important than himself. His eyes were right-sized. 
and God brought honor upon this humble man. As Proverbs 27.2 says, let someone else praise you and not your own mouth, an outsider and not your own lips. So what would this church, what would P&Gs look like if everyone grew in the face of humility? What would our workplaces and homes and neighborhoods and schools be like if we saw God and ourselves and others accurately? What if we did this work of right-sizing? I think we would all walk into church looking for someone to encourage, someone to include, someone who might be lurking in the shadows. I think in our workplaces, we would be at peace. We would show up with our strengths, but we would not be pushing for recognition. In our homes, we would be the first ones to empty the dishwasher, to ask our roommate or spouse or child about their day, and to really listen, really listen to their response. We would get the focus off of ourselves and onto others. We would walk into the grocery store or the train station or any place that our day takes us, and we would not overlook the cashier or the waitress or the bus driver or the homeless person. No human being would be considered unworthy of our respect and attention and courtesy. And you know what? We would be so peaceful and free because we wouldn't be trying to impress. We would let it go. And when we live a life of humility, in the end, others will heap honor on us, just like they did for my dad. We let go of our striving, and honor comes anyway. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, magnificent creator, gracious Father, we honor you now. We agree together that you are bigger than we know, stronger than we know, more amazing than we could possibly express. And we are sorry for the times where we try to take your rightful place, where we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Father God, help every person here to think of ourselves accurately with sober judgment and to put way more energy into caring about other people's lives and situations than our own. I pray that this would be a church marked by humility. I pray that it will increase over time and it will be known as a place of great love where each person is valued and treasured and respected no matter what their state in life. Thank you for reminding us of these truths, for the wisdom of your word, for the story in Luke that hits us right where we live. We love you, Father, and we humbly thank you for the beauty of this day. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, who humbled himself all the way to the cross, in his name we pray, amen.